Hey there, thank you for, for being here today. So it's going to continue our sermon series on the Gospel of John. Pastor Allen has a great sermon today that's going to be really engaging about John the Baptist. And I'm excited f- f- for you to hear it. Uh, for other c- content about the sermon, follow up by playing our sermon conversation that's going to be after the sermon. And there's going to be things on the app and our site too. So with that being said, it's time to begin. Hey, Christ community, so good to be with you today. I'm really excited about this message. Last week, we embarked on a very significant journey as a church. We started a teaching series in which we are going through an amazing book of the Bible, and that book is the book of John. The book of John is a beautiful, powerful, provocative, engaging, unique eyewitness account of Jesus' life. It is one of four accounts of Jesus' life that we have in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them offers a unique perspective on the life of Jesus, which gives us a, a more complete picture of who Jesus is. Now, what it's, what's especially fascinating about this particular book, the book of John, is that it includes a lot of stuff in its account that the other uh, accounts don't include. For instance, the woman at the well the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. These are all unique to John's account. Also within the book of John, there are seven very powerful I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life. None of those are contained in any of the other gospel accounts. But then on the other hand, the book of John doesn't contain any of Jesus' parables which make up a significant portion of the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because of all this, the gospel of John has a very different feel to it. There is a theological depth to this book, to the book of John, that I'm excited for us as a church to wade into. We are intentionally taking a year to walk through this book and see all that God has for us. So as you are going through this book, so as we are going through this book, I want to encourage you to just take time on your own and let God speak to you from John's words because John makes it very clear that he wrote this book for you and for me. He tells us his purpose in writing this book. Check this out, John 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has a very specific purpose for you and me as we interact with this book. He wants us to understand who Jesus really is so that we can find life in his name. John uses this word life like 47 times in this book. He, he's talking about a quality of life that Jesus can bring to our lives. The more we know about who Jesus is, the more life we can experience in him. Well, last week, Pastor KJ did an inspiring overview of this book and looked at the first um, five verses, which are so incredibly powerful. Let me, let me read these verses again. In the beginning was the word And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, as we see here, John begins his his book by making an astounding claim about Jesus, that Jesus is God. He is the fullest revelation of who God is and what he's like. And notice John's declaration about this Jesus. He says, in him is life. Jesus brings life and light into our darkness. I mean, that's, that's quite a claim. And John is going to spend the rest of this book building a case for how and why Jesus alone can bring true life to you and me. Now, like a good lawyer, John begins building his case by bringing in a witness, a credible witness who can begin to testify to us about who this Jesus really is, which brings us to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Okay, so the John that that John is referring to here is not himself. In fact, John never names himself in this entire book, even though he was one of the disciples of Jesus. When he does refer to himself, he has a beautiful way of doing so. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. For John, that was the most significant thing about himself, more significant even than his name. It's the fact that he was loved by Jesus. And it was this deep experience of Jesus' love for John that enabled John to write so powerfully about this Jesus so that we might experience that as well. Okay, so as we just read in verses 6 to 8, John the Beloved introduces us to another John, John the Baptist. And again, his purpose in doing so, as he says right here, is to provide for us right off the bat a credible witness, a testimony of someone who can point us to the one who is the word and is light and life. So John earnestly wants us to know who this Jesus really is. And so he calls to the stand, so to speak, his first witness, John the Baptist. Now, we have to jump down to verse 19 in order to hear the testimony John is referring to in verses six to eight. So let's do that. Um, And don't worry, next week we're going to look at the portion that we're skipping today. So in this section in John 1, 19 to 34, John the Baptist gives us his testimony about Jesus. And there are two critical questions that John the Beloved wants John the Baptist to answer for us. First question is this. Why should we care what John the Baptist says about Jesus, right? What difference does his testimony make to us today? Now, it's fascinating to note that John the Beloved doesn't go into any historical background here about who, the John, who John the Baptist is. Now, we, we get that in other places in the Bible. For instance, in, in the book of Luke, chapter 1, Luke's entire first chapter is about how John the Baptist was a miracle baby born to a priest named Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, and how Elizabeth was actually a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but John doesn't go there. He's not interested in giving us a history of John the Baptist. He's interested in his testimony. Look with me beginning in verse 19. Now this 
was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Okay, so here's John the Baptist in the middle of nowhere, out in the boonies, baptizing people. And the elite, important religious leaders in Jerusalem send a delegation to go find out more about this John the Baptist guy. Um, We already see here in this passage, we're seeing that John the Baptist has some significant street cred, right? He, He is obviously attracting a lot of attention. Even though he's kind of a wild man that eats locusts, you know, people are still, they're flocking to him to listen to him and to be baptized by him. And the esteemed religious leaders in Jerusalem take notice of that. They hear about that. And so they send a delegation to question him. They want to know who he is, not in terms of his background or his name. They specifically want to know if he is the Messiah. See, at that time among the Jews in Israel, there was a lot of anticipation and speculation about a coming Messiah whom the Old Testament spoke about. So this delegation goes to ask John the Baptist. Here's here's where we pick that up in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They ask him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. See, John the Baptist is adamant here about who he is not. He's not the Messiah, nor is he Elijah. Now, why do they ask him about that? Well, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who kind of had the John the, Bapt- the, the John the Baptist vibe going on, right? Hung out in the wilderness, kind of a wild man, strong prophetic voice. And at one point, he gets taken up into heaven. He, he doesn't die. And so in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there is this prophecy where God says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So the Jews were anticipating some return of Elijah, which is why they ask, are you Elijah? Now, what's interesting is that in Luke 1, When the angel comes to Zechariah to tell him about this baby that will be born to Elizabeth, i.e. John the Baptist, the angel says that John will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus later confirms the same thing, that John the Baptist is the one who has come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But as John the Baptist, you know, is answering this delegation and he's acknowledging their question here, technically speaking, he's just saying to them, look, I'm not Elijah in the flesh. I'm just John. So then they asked John, well, are you the prophet? Well, that is a reference also to the Old Testament, a passage in Deuteronomy where God said he was going to raise up from the people a prophet like Moses. So John the Baptist says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. And I'm not the prophet that Moses was talking about. Verse 22, finally they said, then who who are you? (laughs) Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Okay, now this is where we see that John the Baptist is very clear about his own identity and purpose. Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, "I I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. John is quoting here from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 40, which was written to the Israelites when they were in the midst of a miserable captivity in Babylon. Well, in chapter 4, Isaiah begins to speak comfort 
to, his pe- to God's people in this situation, letting them know that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And as a precursor to that, there will be a voice from the wilderness calling out, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, in that day, they didn't have paved roads. So if a king was going to go visit someplace, the people there would have to level the ground. They would have to build roads ahead of time to prepare a way for the king to enter. So Isaiah is saying that when it's time for the Messiah, the Lord, to enter into our situation, there will be one who comes before him and prepares the way, not physically, but spiritually. Well, that's John the Baptist's role. He is the one predicted long before who will prepare people's hearts for Jesus' coming. So how will he do this? Well, Isaiah says, through his voice calling in the wilderness. John the Baptist acknowledges here that he is that voice. He is the one sent by God to call out to the people and to let them know that the Messiah is coming. For John the Baptist, excuse me, for John the Beloved, This is the critical question in this initial section of this book. Here's the the question. Are you and I paying attention to the voice of John the Baptist, who is still speaking through this passage? He is still preparing the way. Are we listening to what he has to say? That's a really important question, because the reality is not everyone is listening. In fact, in the next verse, we see a group of people who are not listening to John's testimony. And he guesses who they they are? The Pharisees. Verse 24, now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophets? Notice how they're not asking for information here. They're trying to make a point that they're questioning his authority to baptize people. See, this was a power thing for them, a control issue. They were going to clamp down on anyone who didn't fit their religious structure. And, you know, let's just be honest. I mean, this is what religion does. And all of us are vulnerable to this. We can easily get stuck in our religious forms and structures and practices, and we start looking down on those who don't fit our specific flavor of spiritual practice. And suddenly our religious practices become more important than the person that all of this practice is actually about, Jesus. Religion can easily cause us to fail to hear the voice of John the Baptist pointing us to our Messiah. Okay, but John was unfazed by their question, even the way they ask it all, that he was unfazed. He he cuts through all the religious garbage and clearly articulates his purpose in baptizing. Verse 26, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Okay, so notice the shift that just happened. Up to this moment, John the Baptist has been answering their questions about his identity, who he is and who he's not. But now when they press him on this question of why he's baptizing, John shifts the focus to someone else, to the one that John has been preparing the way for, the one for whom John is not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. That there is a there's a beautiful uh, excuse me there's a beautiful humility that John demonstrates here. 
He is not baptizing for his own glory. He's not. He's not trying to gather a crowd for his own glory. His sole purpose is to point to someone else's glory. Now, here's what's so fascinating as we're walking through this passage. We don't yet know the name of this other person. We don't know their name. John the Beloved hasn't yet mentioned the name of this one who is the word, who is this light shining in the darkness. So who is it? Who is it? Well, we finally find out in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. This person named Jesus enters the picture and suddenly everything shifts from John the Baptist's identity to Jesus' identity. And so this is the second question that John the Beloved wants John the Baptist as a witness to answer for us, right? First question was, why should we listen to John the Baptist? And and we had all those reasons. Now, here's one is because of, of, you know, he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. He has credibility, all of that. Okay, that was the first question. But here's the second question that John the Beloved wants John the Baptist to answer for us. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And there are two specific, um, two specific identities that John testifies about concerning Jesus. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John the Baptist sees Jesus and he immediately blurts out, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist's first description of Jesus goes right to the core of Jesus' purpose in coming to remove our sin to remove the stain of sin as well as the destructive power of sin in our lives. Sin is a barrier that keeps us from experiencing life. Sin destroys our relationships. It destroys our self-esteem, our sense of purpose, our emotional well-being. It removes us from experiencing the fullness of life that God intends for us to experience, which is why John's declaration here is so powerful. Jesus has come to address our most pressing need, He has come to take away our sin. Jesus is on a rescue mission to deliver us from the oppressive nature of sin in our lives. So how will he do this? Well, John tells us Jesus is the Lamb of God, which was a reference to the Passover where the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost protected people from death. So John is saying Jesus is that Lamb. He will take upon himself the full consequences of our sin through his death on the cross. He will die in our place so that the stain and the power of sin could be lifted off of us completely. And notice the breadth of Jesus' work. He didn't die on the cross for a select few. No, no. John declares that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. There is no sin that puts you out of reach from the Messiah. There is no sin that he is unwilling or unable to forgive, no matter how horrible it is, no matter how often we've given into that sin. I mean, if you think you've done something that Jesus can't forgive, then you're not fully listening to the testimony of John the Baptist. Jesus is 
the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And that includes your sin and my sin. No one is too far removed from the forgiveness of Jesus because he paid for all of that sin through his sacrificial death on the cross. He is the Lamb of God. Are you and I experiencing him in this way? Are we listening to the testimony of John the Baptist who proclaims Jesus to be the one in whom we can find complete forgiveness? Look, I didn't ask if you know that Jesus can forgive. I'm not looking for the Sunday school answer here. I'm asking, are you experiencing the wonder and freedom and joy of his forgiveness? Are you living in the reality of Jesus' forgiveness? So how do we experience this aspect of who Jesus is? Well, it's very simple, but not necessarily easy. We have to admit we need forgiveness. We have to admit that we've blown it, that we need a lamb of God to take away our sin. Now you'd think that would be pretty easy to acknowledge, but, but it's not. There were plenty of people in Jesus' day who were trusting in their own goodness, their own reputation, their own religious activity, their own righteousness. And look, that doesn't work. That's the one thing that will keep you from God's forgiveness. Pride. Believing you don't need a savior, that you're doing fine on your own. But if you're willing to admit that you struggle with sin, if you're willing to admit your self-centeredness, your failures, your brokenness, your, your need for Jesus to forgive you, then his forgiveness is yours. You can keep coming back to him again and again because like John said, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, are you experiencing Jesus in this way? The second declaration that John the Baptist makes regarding who Jesus is is found in the next few verses. Look at verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Okay, this is awesome. So here, John the Baptist is recalling something that happened earlier when he himself baptized Jesus. We don't have that account here. It's, it's, it's in other places. It's not right here in this passage, but it's in other places. But John says that at that moment, as he's baptizing Jesus, at that moment, he saw the Spirit of God descend upon and remain upon Jesus. Now, this is significant. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people at various times for a specific task, but, it, but it then after the task, it would leave. It would not remain on people. But here, the Spirit does just that. The Spirit comes upon Jesus and remains on him. And as that happened, God the Father whispered to John the Baptist's heart, this is my chosen one who will baptize with my Holy Spirit. So notice, not only is Jesus filled with the Spirit of God, he is also the one who will baptize others with the Spirit of God. See, Jesus is the dispenser of the very spirit and life of God. This word baptized literally means to be immersed in. John is proclaiming that Jesus the Messiah will pour into our lives the very presence of God. So through Christ, we are immersed in the spirit of God, not temporarily, but permanently. 
The Spirit of God comes to live in us and dwell in us and is available to continually fill us. See, John wants to make sure we understand that Jesus is not only on a mission to forgive our sin. He is also on a mission to bring us life, to connect us with the very Spirit, the very life of God in a real and a personal way. As we're going to see throughout this book, John talks a lot about our experiencing the Holy Spirit. In John 7, John describes the Spirit as a living, as living water bubbling up from within us. In John 14 to 16, Jesus describes how the Holy Spirit is the very presence of God in us. He will guide us into all truth. He will fill us with love and joy and empower us in his mission. See, John the Baptist is declaring, he is giving witness to the fact that Jesus the Messiah will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. He will immerse us with the Holy Spirit. In other words, to use the language the New Testament later uses, Jesus will fill us to overflowing with the life-giving Spirit of God. The fullness of God, the fullness of God's spirit is available to you in May 24-7. Again, the question is, are we experiencing Jesus as the one who dispenses the Holy Spirit in abundance? Are we experiencing him in that way? I just talked with a guy a couple weeks ago who serves with an organization called Every Home for Christ, and he was telling me about this Russian missionary who lives in the Ukraine. And this guy wanted to do something um, so he's he, just about the situation there. So he recently brought um, 50 buses, 50 buses into the Ukraine filled with food and supplies for the people there. Five of these buses got blown up, but he's still bringing, you know, he's still bringing supplies. I mean, where does that kind of courage come from? Where does that kind of compassion come from? From the very spirit of God, <laughs> who is alive in us. The Holy Spirit does his best work when we are at the end of our resources, right? I mean, where in your life do you need a fresh infusion of the Spirit of God, bringing love or courage, or joy or self-control? Where do you need that? And then let me ask this, where, have you asked Jesus to immerse you afresh in his spirit, to fill those places with his life and his presence, to fill you with courage and, and the, the, the fearlessness and love and compassion, all of that. Have you asked Jesus to fill you in that way? <laughs> because he is the dispenser of this spirit. Man, we, we dare not miss what John the Baptist is proclaiming to us today. He is saying to us, look, this is who Jesus is. This is what he continually offers us, forgiveness and fullness. Forgiveness and fullness. The question is, are our hearts prepared to receive all that Jesus has for us? Is this, is how, you, is this how you and I are experiencing Jesus the Messiah? Are we experiencing him as the Lamb of God who has taken away our sin? I mean, I mean really, do, do you and I live in this reality of a God who has removed our sin and who delights in us and whose grace is poured out upon us even in the midst of our failures? Do you know, are you living in the wonder and the joy of that forgiveness? And then secondly, are you and I experiencing Jesus as the one who immerses us in the life-giving spirit of God so that he fills our broken and empty and fearful places with his love and his life? 
Are we listening to the testimony of John the Baptist declaring to our hearts who Jesus really is? Let's pray together. So as we're quieting our hearts, I want to invite you to a couple of responses, just a prayerful responses. First of all, do you have a relationship with Jesus, the Jesus that is being proclaimed in this passage, the one who is the Lamb of God and the giver of the Spirit? Do you have, have you even entered into a relationship with him? Earlier in this, in this chapter, John says, but to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Have you received Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him and entered into this relationship? Not, it's not about your own effort. It's not about religion. It's about trusting Jesus' work. And if you're not certain you've ever done that, or you know you haven't, then I want to invite you just to pray with me. Pray with me in the silence of your heart, or you can pray out loud if you want, but let's just pray. Dear Jesus, I place my trust in you. I need you to forgive my sin, and I want you to come live in me, and so I ask you to do that. I believe you died on the cross for me, and I now receive your forgiveness and your life. God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in their relationship with you. Just another response here. Let me just, let me ask you to, as you're quieting your hearts, are you experiencing Jesus as the Lamb of God? Are you experiencing the fullness of his forgiveness? Is there, is there some sin that you're just hanging on to, you're feeling the guilt and shame about, and it just kind of, it's just a dark cloud over you? And maybe you don't think Jesus could forgive you, but he can and will. Are you willing to bring that to Jesus, to confess that? Just do it right now, just to confess that sin no matter how horrible it is or how horrible you think it is, just bring your guilt and your shame and give that to Jesus. And now let him wash you and cleanse you through the power of his blood. You don't have to carry the guilt of that, the shame of that any longer. He has removed it from you. So live in his forgiveness. The third response is this response regarding the Holy Spirit. Jesus as the one who baptizes us, who immerses us in the Holy Spirit. So if you've placed your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He does. He lives in you. But he's longing to fill you, every part of your life, and immerse you. So is there an area of your life where you just you need a fresh filling of the, from, the, the, from Jesus, of the Spirit of God in you, filling you with faith, 
filling you with encouragement, with joy, with strength. Just ask Jesus. Take a moment. Just ask him to fill you in that place. Jesus, we receive your forgiveness and we receive your spirit, your life. We love you. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you for this journey we're on. Pray that you, as we're walking through this book, would you help us see you more clearly and be impacted by you more fully. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I wanted to mention just a kind of a cool story, cool thing happening at our church this weekend. Um, we have 31 people who are being baptized in, in our services, and that is such a cool thing. 31 people whose lives have been impacted by Jesus, and now they're publicly declaring that. And so I wanted to just share that with you, not only to celebrate, but also just to let you know, if you give, if you are one of the many who give to Christ's community financially, man, you are investing in that kind of thing happening. You're investing in lives being changed by Jesus in all sorts of ways. That's just one example. But I wanted to just thank you for your generosity to Christ Community Church and just to let you and all of us celebrate the lives that are being impacted and changed by Jesus because of your generosity. So thank you guys. God bless you. All right, so it is time for for us to go beyond and to talk, to talk about things beyond the sermon a bit. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it because it's the Gospel of John. Yeah. So, um, well, I um, appreciate the, the beginning of the, the message, you know, referring to um, John is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And people have recognized that, you know, ever since the time they were first written. Yep. And there's that so much more like suggestive and contemplative side of John mm -hmm. that's there that I think, um, you know, just gives us so much room for thinking and pondering. And um, we were just, I was just thinking about John as somebody who's older, um, probably has written after the fall of Jerusalem in 70, and now he's looking back and he's thinking, Wow, look mm. at all that's been going on about who Jesus is. And then just walking through his whole life is like, I didn't even get it. Yeah. And now I'm, it's dawning on me this like fullness of who Jesus is. Uh, I suspect we'll get a little bit more yeah. to the incarnation eventually, but uh, I think that's... Uh, next week. Next week, good. <laughs> yeah. There we go. The incarnation. Uh, yeah. but so thank so you talking about that, like, that... that period of time that John was coming from. So something that you brought up is that the Gospel of John is the only gospel potentially that had been composed post the fall of the temple. Right. Uh, the other three, the temple, had been there. And there's something about that I enjoy a ton about the Gospel of John begins talking about John the Baptist, who is someone who who was so big on calling people out beyond the temple, right? Like yeah, yeah. there was this like get out of here, you know, like come out into the 
desert. Come home. Uh, the people of God don't belong in the temple, and he's baptizing apart from the temple because there's plenty of temple baptisms and things happening, right? right? And so, so John had this like this beyond the temple vocabulary, John the, the, the Baptist, and then the beginning of the Gospel of John post the fall of the temple is bringing people to John the Baptist. And, yeah, and think There's, of this fun. I, I think it's interesting too that um, John the Baptist is in the wilderness, which is pre-temple if we think about Exodus. Right. And he is the one who is beyond the Jordan, which is also like pre, um, pre-temple. And it's, it's, it's as though John the Baptist is baptizing baptizing people and there's a new beginning and the um, the Jordan was the entrance of the new beginning into this like mm-hmm. promised land where real life is to be experienced where light is finally breaking forth onto the the eyes and the uh, of the people going in I mean I'm thinking mm-hmm. it, it, the Jews and the Hebrew people leaving um, um, uh, Egyptian slavery and going into the promised land. And there's, this, there's a, a reflection of that, I think, from John the Baptist beyond the Jordan and Jesus comes out and then they cross the Jordan and it's just Yeah, really the symbolism, profound. the ties between the Old Testament and the yeah. New Testament are pretty profound. And you brought out ties uh, with... Uh, Very much so with, with John Malachi, the Baptist. Malachi, yeah. Absolutely. Deuteronomy. The Elijah thing. Um, John the Baptist clearly understood his role was yeah. a fulfillment of Isaiah 40. Right, you know, right. Preparing the way and being that voice in the wilderness and all of that. He saw himself in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that was very interesting. Uh, I was just thinking, like, potentially did, did John the Baptist and the voice of John the Baptist finally get fulfilled in the composing of the Gospel of John uh, following the fall of the temple. Um, So if John is kind of almost this voice painting this picture Uh and, and John is bringing him back to bring credibility to the identity of Jesus, but beyond that, the hope for people post temple um, yeah. saying like this didn't surprise us right um, yeah. this had been our been our path for a super long time I, sus- I suspect Alan you'll get to it next week on John 114 where yep. um, Jesus dwelt among us and you know the original idea of tabernacle tabernacling it's like here is the real temple it is in jesus and it doesn't matter that we don't have the temple any longer because Mm. we have jesus yep and uh, there's just that whole movement um forward to jesus and identifying who jesus is and then of course is the implications of who is jesus in our life today as the readers of this gospel yeah so uh-huh. Yeah, really helpful. I, I always like, so I saw a great value in like, who is he talking to? But then thinking about that specific time 
period, that's right. gigantic. Right, right. Yeah, we have an old person <laughs> writing a gospel when, I mean, a lot of time has passed, but a lot of significant events have passed. It's post-temple. It's post the fall of Jerusalem, and that's life-changing. And we need, when, when our life is like turned upside down, we need stability. And John is giving us the stability, pointing to Jesus. Hmm. That's where I see uh, you know, some of that going. But um, this is just a fantastic series. I can tell already that we're going we're gonna to love this. <laughs> Exploring well, <hope> John. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> or it's long, right? Yeah. So it'll be good. But that's helpful, really. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about John in the, the way you guys are talking about it, when he wrote, when he most likely wrote the book. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will look... I don't... I mean, I could just hang out there I, for... In yeah. Just the heartbeat and the intent. And then, like, he could have done the book earlier. Mm-hmm. But something caused it to happen and to be born. I, I mean, just the value of time. Hmm. Yeah. Well, he's on an island writing, isn't he, at this point? I don't know. Maybe do not. Do know that specific? Uh, maybe for the Rev- book of Revelation. Uh, maybe right, not for the Gospel of John. So. Right. I don't know if, I think that was Revelation, but I don't know about the Gospel. I don't know if we know, honestly. Yeah, the Gospel I of think John. that's actually... We don't know exactly. But it is, I think it is interesting, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are referred to as the synoptic gospels because they use similar source material in their, you know, they have many similarities. John is just so outside of that. It's so unique. Yeah. Um, And you just think of all of the things that if John hadn't been written, that we would miss these encounters oh, with the woman at the well, with Nicodemus, the oh, whole, yeah. for God so loved the world. That's, John was the one that recorded that encounter. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, right? I'm the whole, I'm the good shepherd, the hear my voice, John 10. There, um, I'm the vine. You have that whole Olivet discourse in John 14 to 16 about the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. abiding. And I'm like, my goodness, if, so much of our our theology is fueled by and informed by John when you think about it mm-hmm. and and that's the beautiful thing about all I saw I, I don't I don't know what I think about this because I think sometimes it becomes a little too reductionistic when people try to say oh Matthew's purpose is this and oh, right. you know that bothers me a little bit but there was this interesting analogy of of the the vision in Ezekiel where that the that being had a face of a man, okay, sure, and an ox, uh huh, and help me out here, Do you eagle, remember? an eagle, and what was the other one? Um, um man, ox, eagle. Yeah, uh, we under. Yeah, well, I know can, the point. A I lion? trying uh, had to had to be a lion. I, yes, and so then this person was just saying how. Over time, people each of the saw gospels each of the Gospels represented by one, of those, one of those symbols. And so the idea is like Matthew was really focused on what Jesus said, his words, right? So the, the Sermon on the Mount and then the, 
the Gospel of Mark was more about what Jesus did. And then the Gospel of Luke was more the human. It was more of Jesus, what Jesus felt. So you have Jesus weeping and at the, huh. you know, entering Jerusalem. You had just different things about his compassion, right? So that would be the, so that Mark would be the ox, just do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew would be maybe the, I guess, the lion. Is if it is the lion, <laughs> we'll have to. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I can't remember. Here like, we are. That sounds like a <laughs> biblical thing, right? Sure. <laughs> Bringing up something that. Yeah. But anyway, um, the idea was John being the eagle, and this this vantage point of the splendor. And the glory of God. The other thing I think that's interesting, maybe you mentioned this in your sermon, but where John begins, because Luke, Luke begins. Now I gotta look this up because Luke, Luke begins. Where does he begin his genealogy? Do you remember? Is it Adam or is it Abraham? It's it's uh, it. Um, I can't remember. But but, but the Adam, point is that it's Adam. Okay, and then Matthew begins his with Abraham. And so, but they go different directions. Exactly, right. they're different genealogies because they're yeah, and they're different, different genealogies point. as but well. My, but I the agree. point is, where does John begin? At the beginning of time. At the beginning, beginning of, time. of time. John goes back even further. Yes, it's not even a ge- genealogy at the start. It is in the beginning, which makes everybody think about Genesis at the, as well. well absolutely, in the beginning. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah. But like, there. there is something. Two, it goes beyond this idea of sin. Uh, like, there is the, how did the bloodline of mm-hmm. Jesus, and it goes to like. To deity. To yeah, like. Free incarnate. Yeah, yeah. It, it's exactly. kind of like, I don't even care about DNA. Right. Tell me about <laughs> the galaxies exploding. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It's really true. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. That's where John the Eagle, he's giving us this expansive so, view from the beginning of time, but before the beginning of time. There, two, two, two things are coming to my mind. One is the explicit statement of John in chapter 20, when he says, these things have been written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, that's like a purpose statement. Right. He's summarizing and saying, this is why I'm writing this book so that you will know that Jesus Christ is the mm-hmm. Son of God, um, yep. which is another summary statement in a way, taking us back to John 1. And yet, in John 1, when he makes it explicit that um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then in John 20, when Thomas shows up, and he's the doubting one, doubting Thomas, and his affirmation is my Lord and my God. It's like this beautiful poetic scene of opening with God and closing with God. And, and John has been thinking and pondering this whole, like, who Jesus is. And so then he goes back, and in John 1, like you've done, is looking at John the Baptist, this witness who's saying, this is the one, yep. he is the Messiah, we, and everything points to him. So I think, I mean, this whole book is just really some wonderful shifts and flows in there that are identifying for us who Jesus is and that he's our Messiah, he's our I king. Think from a very practical, practical thing. Yeah. Uh, our culture today, so in 
including inside of the church. Mm -hmm. I think that things have become so hyper-spiritualized, so ethereal, mm. um, that there's something about the Gospel of John that brings us back home a bit. Yeah. And to be like, yes, however, it's all about Jesus. Yeah. All of our faith is here in the person of Jesus. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Th 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 I just think there's so much value in coming home. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So, right. The I am statements yep. or whatever, the, that there's so much life in even pondering and meditating and going mm -hmm. slowly through this book. I think that's probably some people are like, what a year we're taking a year. And, and it's, but I think there's value in slowing down. There's plenty of content. It's not like we're going to be, I mean, there's plenty right. of content in each message, but slowing down long enough to actually, cause some of these passages are kind of difficult and in, in understanding right. what John right. is saying. And so right. that's where I think, the t taking time in it gives us a chance to, okay, what is John actually saying here? Yeah. It's not what we would expect. That doesn't seem the answer I would have expected Jesus to say. So what? what is, you know, there are those kinds of things. And so the encouragement even for those of you watching is let's let's make this a journey for all of yeah. us that um, if there are ways to engage in the book yeah. of John in a small group or in your own devotional time and to it's okay to go slowly and to not understand yeah. on the first glance and to spend or ever. time. <laughs> like, what, that's what maybe, I like. Yeah, it, right? The goal well, is the enjoyment of it. Yeah, like we're having a conversation. And I think one of the ways of reading John is looking at the conversations that Jesus has mm -hmm. along the way and realizing that you're in a big conversation <laughs> that yep. John is having with all of us yes. about who Jesus is. I mean, you can... Good. The, the conversation with his mother in John 2, the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, the woman at the well at John 4, it's just, it's such a conversational, and we get to sit here at the table enjoying this conversation that Jesus is having with people. That's good. Yeah. It really is. It's an interesting blend, the book itself, because there are these amazing encounters mm. like Nicodemus, woman at the well, but even in those encounters, there's this deep theology. Yeah, yeah. There's this deep theology oh, yeah. of what Nicodemus is asking about new birth, and um, and so yeah, there's a richness. There's a Jesus, you know, Jesus encounters people. They're transformed by him, but there's a richness in the conversation you're talking about. There's a yeah. depth to oh, it that I yeah. think is. I th I hope it's going to be. I think it will be meaningful yeah. and life giving for our church as a whole to. To let's let's wait in and let's let John speak to us, you know, yeah. about who Jesus is. So I think it'll yeah. be fun. Good, thanks. All right, well, that's about it for our time here. Have a good day. Thanks. See you.